Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Homelands Adventure Podcast. Storytelling inspired by adventure. So welcome to the Homelands Adventure Podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Hall. I'm delighted to be joined today by serial adventurer and real life Wonder Woman, Lindsay Cole. Um, I'm delighted (laughs) to call a friend as well. How are you doing, Lindsay? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Cameron? Yeah, very well, thank you. Very well. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, Pleasure to have you. thank you for having me. So you've accomplished a lot of incredible adventures, um, from cycling from Cairo to Cape Town for the World Cup in South Africa, um, roller skating to Paris, um, and running to Manchester with a ukulele, lots of things that we'll, we'll get into. But I'm quite curious to know where it all started for you. Um, I know we actually met in Canada many moons ago on a ski season. Mm-hmm. Um, was it that working, kind of traveling thing that started off the taste for adventure, or how, how did you first get the, get the bug? No, I wasn't. Um, I've always been very impulsive and I was um, always very sporty but not competitive I didn't really care about the competitive side and um, I grew up with um, my duvet cover was an atlas of the world so I always was fascinated with the world and we never really went on holidays further than uh, the Canary Islands of Spain so I always wanted to go further afield and then when I graduated from uni, that's when I did a ski season in Canada and Austria and a volunteer project in Sri Lanka. Um, and then I went to Australia and wanted to circumnavigate with this van that I had. And then my dad passed away suddenly. And I was catapulted back to my old life at home, really depressed. And um, to deal with my grief, I um, one day I had an epiphany. I was like, oh, I need to kind of channel this energy into something else so I did a triathlon and ridden a bike for ages and I was really proud of myself and so then I cycled the length of Britain and again was really proud of myself for getting to the end so it became quite addictive and I became more aware of my own capabilities when I just tried something I didn't think I'd be good at and it just grew from there. So when your dad passed away, um, that was quite sudden, and you were you were you were travelling at the time, right? Mm, yeah. And and where were you when you when you heard that news, and how did that you know information come to you? I was um, on a so I wanted to stay. I wanted to live in Australia actually, and to get your second year visa, you have to do seasonal work and fruit picking. So I was on a banana farm um, and I was, um, I went to get the bus at like just 10 to 6 or something. So I called home actually and I got my dad and then I asked to speak to mum as I normally did. And then I organised a a call because she was out. But when I got back from work, so I went to the banana farm, picked bananas for, rolled bananas. My job was, I stood by a conveyor belt, making sure all the bananas face the right direction and then I got back from the farm and I had a call from mum and he died in between so 
I was riddled with guilt for having asked to speak to mum when he answered the phone. And so you're, you're back home, I guess that, you know, you're, you're out in Australia, you say you're wanting to live there, that's, I suppose, you know, in air quotes, kind of living the dream. And then your world comes crashing down um, and you're back home. What was that reality like, your new reality like, when, you, when you're suddenly kind of taken away from this big trip and this big adventure that you're on and all of a sudden you're, you're back home with your mum dealing with a bereavement? Yeah, well, just confusing, really, because I didn't want to leave her. And um, I was 24, which doesn't sound that old, but it is, sorry, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't sound that young, but it is, it's a weird transitional time because you've just finished uni, you're still a bit of a kid, but you're not quite a kid. So I suppressed all my emotions because I didn't really, didn't think I was entitled to be upset or cry. Um, so I, I kind of confused myself and all my friends had moved on and were climbing their career ladders and I was quite lonely and I just didn't really know what to do. So yeah, it wasn't a very odd time. So that, I guess that energy that you, that you had, maybe that maybe negative energy that was there from the bereavement, uh, uh, that took you into doing the London triathlon, um, as a means to kind of, uh, expel that energy or to, to, yeah, to, to deal so with it it gave me a focus so I, ne- I needed something to focus on um so I yeah I found it quite helpful having to I got a job as a PA which I didn't want to do anyway I'm not organized and um <clears throat> I was going into London every day from outside London and um beforehand I would just come back home slump on the couch feel sorry for myself Whereas once I signed up to do the triathlon, I had a focus and would go for a cycle, go for a run, go swimming. And it, it really helped. And what was it about the triathlon specifically? Had you had experience with kind of swimming, running, cycling in the past? Or was it, you know, a friend recommended for you to do it? Why did you choose that particular event? And why was that, you know, it, perhaps a, you know, a focal point for you specifically? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I grew up as a swimmer, as a competitive swimmer, but I wasn't competitive. Um, so I've always been a good swim, pool swimmer. And I went to Loughborough Uni where um, I was offered all these opportunities to try all sorts of new sports. And I always wanted to get into triathlon, but I fancied the drink more than the sport. Uh, so I never really did it. So uh, I just always wanted to um, give it a go. So I just thought, oh, I'll give it a go now. And so that moment when you, you're crossing the finishing line, you've completed the triathlon, um, which I assume you did complete. Um, yeah. uh, how, how did that make you feel? What, what, what was your kind of sense of, of feeling after, you know, you, you put all this energy and focus into completing an event, you cross the finishing line, and then what, what was that sense of feeling like internally? Were you satisfied? Did you feel kind of relieved? Or did you feel maybe empty again because that challenge had been kind of completed and was now over? No, I was actually really scared about the cycle because the cycle was 40 kilometers, which obviously doesn't sound a lot to me now. But um, at the time, I had never cycled more than a mile, really, before training for it. And so I was really nervous about that. And then when I was able to do it, I was really proud of my cycling capabilities. And a month later, there was a um, an organized fundraiser for the British Heart Foundation and my my dad died of a heart attack so um to cycle to Paris 
So I wanted to do that. And I, I, none of my friends with joy wanted to do it. So I looked on Facebook. This is where Facebook can be helpful. And I saw two guys that I sort of knew who were acquaintances, friends of friends, or I, I went to uni with, but there were one guy was five years above me. So I just asked them if they'd be interested and they both were, and they became quite like brothers and are really good friends now. Um, and it's really humbling and that there's, there's a whole world out there of activities to do other than sitting on the couch or going to the pub. So from within doing the triathlon, doing that cycle, and I guess maybe having that maybe psychological barrier of like 40 kilometers, that's a really long way. Did you come out of that with that sense of, wow, I've just cycled 40 kilometers and maybe cycling's now something that I can do more of. And you kind of latch towards cycling as a specific sort of new challenge. Yeah, well, it, this is, I suppose it's the same concept for many, many things I've done. So I've done Ironman. And before I did 40 kilometers, I was scared of not being able to do it. And then I did it. I was like, oh, that wasn't that bad. And then to Paris, it was 300 miles, so 100 miles a day. And oh, God, that, that's a big step up. But then I did it. And then the Ironman is, um, I did a half first, but then the Ironman is, I think it's 118 miles or 120 miles um, within a triathlon. So I thought, oh, God, how will I be able to do that? And then when you do it, you're like, oh, it's and I think it's a sense of achievement when you don't think you're capable of something is quite rewarding and I've heard you mention sort of in previous interviews that you've always felt um sort of average at things not maybe the sportiest not maybe the fastest the quickest but that kind of self-acknowledgement that feeling average is not necessarily a bad thing it just gives you an even greater sense of accomplishment and pride when you do complete something Mm. and it's almost wanting to have that feeling again and kind of rewarding yourself I suppose with that feeling of of accomplishment and achievement is that something which has propelled you from adventure to adventure I think it's more curiosity so if you know you're capable of doing something smaller then you wonder so I wanted to cycle the length of Africa and I knew that I could give it a go because I'd done the warm-up by cycling to Paris in the length of Britain and then um, I wanted to explore it's exploring and curiosity more really and then not know I think the excitement is not knowing if you are going to be able to do it but giving it a go <clears throat> um, is exciting and nerve-wracking because you're not, you're not sure, but you, you, you're, you know that you, you can, you could be capable. So I guess that leads on to the, the Cairo to Cape Town challenge to cycle to the, uh, the World Cup in South Africa. Uh-huh. Now, um, an anecdote for you, but the, I was in um, Tanzania in 2012, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, and obviously you've got Sherpas who are helping to um, carry your equipment and uh, you, you know, join a conversation with them. And these two guys started talking to me about how they had tried to cycle from Tanzania to um, Cape Town for the World Cup two years beforehand. And I uh-huh. said, oh, I've got a friend in the UK. She cycled down from Cairo to Cape Town and they pretty much stopped in their tracks, dropped all the bags and just looked at me with like, no, that, that didn't happen. I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> friend Lindsay. And, um, and they were completely astonished because they didn't even make it out of Tanzania to be able to get there. They found it too tough, too challenging. So 
how do you prepare for cycling the length of um, of, a, of a continent? Um, and uh, and 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 what? Yeah, what was that journey like? It was wonderful, difficult. So I, um, my friends didn't want, um, family didn't want me to go on my own. So I advertised in the metro to find a team, and I found a team. Three, guys. I interviewed tons of people, gave them the questionnaire, and then picked the team. It was three guys. I actually wanted a girl to come, but she um, pulled out last minute. So we had a, we had a situation with team dynamics. We, we didn't gel. That is okay. I'm good friends with one of them now, but I don't know. It's just story of team dynamics isn't it and um i actually designed an itinerary for us to ensure that we knew where we were going to be every day but it's pretty hard to do for five months and and part of the adventure is the unknown so while camping where you might find a beautiful spot i want to pull up um there i was actually a bit nervous about the wild camping because you're you you assume africa might be quite uh, corrupt or dangerous, but it's not not at all. It, it was it was remarkable, and and the people are really friendly and just want to help you. Maybe a bit too friendly. I want to help you a bit too much. Um, but yeah, it was really really good. The the biggest challenge was team dynamics actually. And so, do you have a support vehicle with you as well, or are you just bike packing? No. Yeah, and, just bike packing. And are you when you say you talk about wild camping, is that is that every night or are you kind of mixing it up with staying in hostels and kind of maybe no. being uh, for the first two countries it was wild camping every night. Um apart from if we're in a city, obviously like uh, Khartoum in Sudan, um and Cairo, um in Egypt. But when we got to Ethiopia, it was a bit more sketchy because um kids throw stones at uh, um Westerners, it's, I, I'd heard about it before, but I didn't quite believe it. But then when you experience it, you're like, wow, this actually happens. And it's okay. It's harmless, but um, it's just more built up. So um, you just don't, you want to be wise and um, um, responsible, really. You don't really want to attract bother. And it's not really fair for them if you, you've got these flashy kind of bikes that can scale a continent out behind, by your tent. Um, so, so we what, stayed in bed sits um, past Ethiopia. And what, what kind of bikes are you on? Are you on road bikes or touring bikes? And, uh, touring panniers on? Are you? Panniers, yeah. yeah. And, and so bike packing's relatively new back then. It was, well, actually, you couldn't really, bike packing's for speed. If you want to tour and take some, not luxuries, but a few more possessions, then panniers are better because you can take more. And so how long is that journey? How long is the, you know, in terms of time and did you give yourself to be able to get from Cairo to Cape Town? Well, we needed to get there for the World Cup. So it was, we left in the beginning of February and I think it started in the beginning of June, the first, England's first game in Rustenburg. Um, and I wanted to cycle every mile, but then... By the time we're meeting more people doing similar journeys like hitchhiking or getting a bus or something or driving in Landy's and then we're discovering more beautiful places. So we sort of started extending our time and spots. So sometimes we'd have to hop on a bus and catch up. But actually that was just as much of an adventure in itself because the bus was full of chickens and goats and, and people moving house with sofas attached to the bus and, 
everyone would want to help us strap our bikes down and yeah it was quite quite something and sometimes you had to wait a whole day for a bus and I imagine with those team dynamics that you talk about it's not just you're not just cycling with these people you're effectively living with them I guess 24 hours a day yeah there was no reprieve really it was um it it was I think it's probably when people don't know each other you've got you can't say come on now shut up or time out it's more the you think you can take it it was a lot of banter and it was aimed at me which I can handle but after you know day in day out cycling eight hours a day you're like oh come on did that take you out of the experience of you know you're cycling through all these incredible countries and I imagine meeting some amazing people and you know experiencing kind of the highs and the lows that go with any kind of adventure but did it take away from the experience because you necessarily weren't enjoying the company, the people that you were sharing the experience with? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, well, I suppose everyone has something different they want to get out of something. I, I was, I did a master's in journalism beforehand, so I wanted to do it to get experience in the field, to uh, writing or, um, well, field experience. And so I would stop a lot more and want to take photos. And some some guys, one guy would just want to like pelt and cycle how fast he wanted to go, which is absolutely fine. But if you have different agendas, then it's going to crash. And I, I'm just a slower person by one, even walking down the street, I wander and look in windows and that's how I like to travel. So I, I kind of like going on my own now because I like saying hello to it any interesting person and hearing their story. That's and, all part uh, of it for me. You say, um, you know, it's going to crash. Speaking of crashes, did you have any big crashes on the way on the way through? You must have had some um, some incidents on the bike, I would have thought, travelling that length of, uh, of a distance. Yeah, I did. Um, we were at the Blue Nile Gorge at the top of it, and we had to descend down. It was sort of like a 30-kilometre descent, I think. And my... Um, hands turned into claws because they were breaking so hard and I was still going 20 plus miles an hour I couldn't go any slower um and I could smell the rubber burning um and then I hairpin after hairpin after hairpin I was actually getting a bit scared and then I saw a truck coming up um uphill and there was loads of gravel in between me and the truck and I I don't know I kept having these flashes that we would collide so I threw myself into the cliff to control control the crash so I wouldn't go into him or slip under his wheels um and then I didn't have a helmet on so my head split open but it's quite remarkable remarkable I was out for maybe a few seconds and then I was surrounded by people and chickens and they threw me onto a bus which was just passing by and I was in hospital in Addis Ababa hours later, which was great because I also uh, missed having to do the ascent on the other side. <laughs> so strategic in, in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and hopefully you will start wearing a helmet after this. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and, uh, and so this might sound like an obvious question, but did you have any tickets for the World Cup? No, I tried to blag them, which was a lot harder to do. And then um, we managed to get tickets to two games. I can't actually tell you how I did it now, 
uh, one, I think I might have written to the FA and they might have given us like discounted for our effort. And one, I think I met a guy in a bar who worked for football and gave me two tickets. And so so you managed to get to the England games themselves? Yeah, which is quite unfortunate because they weren't very good. <laughs> I was going to say, all, all that hard work, all that peddling, and it wasn't yeah. the most successful of tournaments for the country, was it? No, it was awful. It was really bad, yeah. And so at the end of that journey, um, is it a case of, you know, you, you, you jump on a plane, you, 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 you know, you're taking your bike with you, if you, are you, you, you leave it there, and then you're back home, and, and then you're back to the real world again? Yeah, I, um, I was going to, so it took us five months to get to South Africa, to Cape Town. And I did, I had a conundrum because I was like, take me five months to get, get here. I want to spend some time here, but it was actually really cold. And I had also contracted a disease called cellulitis, <clears throat> maybe um, just during the football tournament. So in South Africa, my leg ballooned and you can actually die from it, apparently. So my leg was twice the size of my, my right leg was twice the size of my left leg. And then... Um, I managed to get to a doctor in time. Um, I was on some, um, what do you call them, antibiotics. But it really knocked me out for quite a while. And then I was still cycling, made it to Cape Town. So I thought I'd always come, I made a decision to maybe come back, enjoy Cape Town properly. I was exhausted mentally and physically. It was a, it was a really incredible adventure, but there was highs and lows. Because there's there's an element to you're working your way to a destination. So when you reach that destination and you're at the games, is that the end or is it a case of, well, now that I'm here and I've worked so hard to get here that you actually want to spend more time because you've worked so hard to be there in in, in that environment? Well, the first game was in Rustenburg and then we had a month to get to Cape Town. So I had a month in South Africa. I mean, Cape Town's a stunning town but um I just thought I didn't have the money I didn't have um the resources and I'd, I think I spent three days three days there so I went home surprised my mum I didn't tell her I was coming home and it was her birthday oh what a wonderful surprise I'm sure she'd love yeah yeah I survived uh, and, and 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 coming back to the kind of the, the family side of things so obviously with your father passing away and then and then all of a sudden you're kind of you've obviously been traveling before your, your your dad passed but then you're going on these incredible kind of crazy adventures um and how does your mum feel about you know when you say hi mum so this time I'm going to you know what what's her reaction like when you tell her about kind of the next idea that you've got yeah she doesn't really I don't often tell her actually I often start <laughs> doing it and then tell her and uh, she doesn't really like it. The walking around rabbit proof fence, she didn't like it at all. Um, the Africa thing, I think she was okay because I had people coming with me and I, I'd done a lot of research and she'd seen me doing the research. Um, but when I mermaided the Thames, she quite enjoyed it because she was able to come and watch and walk alongside. But I think she came along six, seven or eight times out of the 22 days. And on the rabbit proof fence, we had the, the pleasure to sit down with you um, uh, about 18 months or so ago to, mm-hmm. to talk about your journey walking the rabbit proof fence. Um, but for those people perhaps watching and listening that aren't aware of what the rabbit proof fence is, and before we perhaps talk about that a little bit more, could you maybe just explain a little bit about the fence and your connection with it? Yeah, so the rabbit proof fence is a fence that runs from north to south of Western Australia. It was erected to keep rabbits out of pastoral 
um, Australia farmland when we moved over and bought rabbits for hunting parties and they uh, populated the land. Um, and at a similar time, in, this is around early 1900s, similar time to them erecting the fence, the government introduced a policy to separate mixed race Aboriginal children from their family, put them into um, settlements to assimilate into white society. And when I was backpacking in Australia, when I, I broke my ankle and I read loads of books and watched lots of films, and one of them was a rubber proof fence. Um, and there's a story of these three young Aboriginal girls in 1931 who were taken from their family, placed in the settlement a thousand miles away from their home, and they escaped and walked all the way home with no shoes and no provisions and no GPS. Um, and they're aged between eight and 13. So when I moved back home after my dad died, uh, uh, this story kind of stuck with me when I was struggling because I kept comparing what I was enduring to what they endured and felt guilty when I was feeling sorry for myself. So <clears throat> eventually I wanted to return to pay homage to their journey. So this was, um, you know, you're in Australia, tra you're traveling um, and you read the book, but then actually taking up the, the challenge of the, the adventure to, to walk along the fence, which I think, I think you, you journeyed about 1500 miles, um, kind of self-supported. How long did it take for you to, between reading the book to actually taking up the challenge and, and, and committing to doing that was, was that period? And, and then how did you, you know, prepare for it? Because I think I'm right in saying that nobody else, had, as far as you're aware, had ever done this before. Yeah, uh, eight years it took me, I think. But, but it wasn't necessarily I was dying to do it each of those eight years. I think from reading a book to doing it was eight years. And then the last five of those years, I think it was from each adventure I did made me more confident and not more confident necessarily, but made me aware that the world outside isn't as dangerous as we uh, are implied it is. And so for the last five years, each summer in England, because you had to do it in <clears throat> English summer, Australian winter, I would, I, it was always in my mind, oh, I'd really, I really want to do this, I really want to do this, but I just didn't know if it was possible. So then when I did eventually do it, I still didn't know if it was possible, but I just thought I'll just go and work it out. So I did. So how do you prepare for kind of a solo expedition in the Australian outback? How, what, what, what skills, because you assume that you've got to learn how to, to cook and, um, and feed yourself and, um, and kind of find water. And how do you go about preparing for that type of thing? And had you got any experience of doing that before? The cooking's the easy bit. Um, I think when you go on a long adventure, you're doing it for the adventure. You're doing it for the Miners, it wasn't the challenge to test myself. It was more, I wanted to retrace their footsteps. So I was aware that I had to do anything I could to, to get there. So if that meant not having fresh bread every day, I, I'm not fussy with food anyway. So food for me was easy, but it was just dry food. And I, I would have a funny diet for three months. And I did a survival course an outback survival course which which I probably would have known everything that they taught me most things but 
sometimes you need to be taught common sense. Um, water was my biggest worry. But then from doing the um, survival course, <clears throat> I, Bob Cooper um, advised me to call up all the homesteads that I would pass. So because the fence was erected to keep rabbits out of pastoral land, there were six farms or homesteads along, along the fence. Um, so I called them up and that was really great because then they were aware of my presence, what I was doing and could keep an eye out if, if something went wrong. Um, and they also invited me to stay with them and which is nice and humbling. So I think I'm right in saying that Bob Cooper is your survival expert guru who you had uh -huh. a, a bit of a, a training session with before you went out and you kind of went on one of his survival courses and he kind of yeah went, went through all of the, the, the things that you need to do to kind of prepare yourself. Um, yeah. But from thinking about, you know, that food and kind of uh, uh, sustenance and everything and the, the, the logistics which you allude to, what about the mental side? Because you're going out there alone there's no people um uh, and it's a long journey that hasn't been effectively charted before or, or perhaps not charted since you know the the, the three girls had, had, had you know done the journey themselves in mm -hmm. in the 1930s so how do you equip yourself mentally for that kind of challenge and also that isolation that you're going to be putting yourself into well, that that was fine. I'm good isolated because I am. Um, because to me, I suppose in a work world, people get promoted and work towards getting promoted. Whereas for me, the adventures are sort of me promoting, me working towards a promotion for myself. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, learning new skills, and like I said, when I cycled to Africa, I, I organised the journey. But I always felt like I was tagging along on someone else's trip because the boys were faster. So I'd always be at the back. So whenever we'd cycle through a new town, um, the fun bit is navigating and working out where to go. And I was always sort of following. So I, I quite liked the isolating and working things out and rap, map reading. And I was, there was so much entertainment for me to work out the next bit of the journey, reading the book to follow my footsteps along along with where they were at the time watching the stars picking out southern hemisphere and um, constellations um yeah the isolation was great I, I liked it and did you experience any dark moments where you were you know the emotion over, perhaps overcame you of being like you know I can't if you got lost if you're uh if you can't find you know the, the water supplies or i don't know if anybody at the homestead maybe wasn't in were there, were there times when you, you you just faced some battles where you thought i, I, I can't i can't do this and and uh, you know obviously we're here today so you must have overcome them but how did you <laughs> accomplish or how did you overcome maybe some of those moments at the time when you when you were faced with them yeah i did i, I got really lost at one time um and actually, um, before I set off, I did a, a, a practice walk with um, a, a protest. It was a protest walk in the area that I'd be finishing. So I wanted to see if I could walk in the terrain. And they were um, doing an anti-Uranium walk. <clears throat> There's one girl there who just didn't like me. And I think she didn't like the fact that I was walking a rubber-proof fence. And I thought about it and, and she had an I, I don't know. Um, but she was she was a bit <laughs> bullyish and um 
when we were saying goodbye and hugging each other, she's like, oh, I don't want to hug you. I don't want to be your friend. I just want to see how you get on, if you know what I mean. Um, So she freaked me out a little bit, but I forgot about her. But then when I got lost, I I thought, oh, God, is she going to rock up? And then um, another guy texts a friend who, and he was in the SAS and said, what, how is your friend doing? Um, this is ridiculous. It's so stupid. So I thought about him and I, I was really worried about being that pommy chick, white chick being rescued. <clears throat> um, but then I remembered Bob Cooper saying number one rule in survival is to not panic. So I was panicking and then read my maps and saw there's a track 10 kilometers to the west so came out of the bush because I couldn't couldn't get through the bush was so overgrown and the fence was redundant in the 1950s so it hadn't been used for you know 60 70 years um or more um and so I found my way again and and from having that experience made me more confident and stronger knowing that actually if I can get through that I can fight those demons of those it was like a carousel of people saying you can't do this um and still proceed forward then I could generally hopefully make it to the end that that was a time that made me think oh I've got this because before I was taking each day as it came now I've heard you describe sort of your love of the fence as almost being mm-hmm. like a, a boyfriend, like a like a relationship, like you actually fell in love with the the fence, which obviously is an, an, an inanimate object. Yeah. Um, um, uh, and I've heard you talk about that in terms of the, the 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 subsequent book that you're writing about the adventure and kind of feeling an affinity for that kind of writing process and reliving that journey. I imagine. But what what is it that the I guess the core components of an adventure that give you that special connection? Oh, to the fence? Well, just in the sense that you, you, you're on this journey and you feel this, this, this love. Is, is, that, is that coming from um, you being there in the moment, you remembering reading that book at a time that your father passed away, a combination of all of those things? Or, you know, is it you being, you know, proud of yourself? Where, where does, I suppose, where does, where does that, that love come from? Or, or is it just like, you know, I, 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 I love this you know, wire and wood, what, what's, what, what is think, it that makes that connection? I think many things, really. I think the fact that it was a random book that I picked up. We read books all the time, well, some people do, and it was, it was just a very much random book that was a moving story, but that was it. And then the proximity of timing with losing my dad, and then that book became more of a beacon of inspiration. Um <clears throat> rather than just now a random book. And I think as I was, did, you know, all these adventures, I became quite frustrated with how women, men and women are seen in the adventure world. Like men will explore ice caps or do polar expeditions or climb mountains. And, and even in, when I did Iron Man, as were women, but um, when I did Iron Man, all these uh, nutrition brands are thrown at you and um, sport gear and etc. just to do an event for one day voluntarily. And we're like putting our blood, sweat and tears for it, but just for one day, even at the training, you train a lot for that. But the girls did it all 
with nothing. So I was mm. I was in awe of them for many years, thinking, God, they scaled a thousand miles with no shoes or food or um, maps or anything. And it was pure because they had to. They were fleeing somewhere um, to get home. So it wasn't an adventure for them. It was a necessity. Um, so number one, they inspired me for so many years and I always thought of them. And then when I was in their footsteps, so I had never had a moment like it where I'd been so inspired that I wanted to mimic or retrace someone and been walking in their actual footsteps. It was really, really um, every day when I was on my own, I'd, think about oh where would they have slept or seeing little caves or holes and thought oh would they have tucked in there and, and then when I was taken in by their family it was everything just was everything worked out and when was it that you became aware that there was uh you know that you could connect with the family had you tried to reach out to them first and foremost to, to, to... yeah so when I got to Australia and did this anti-uranium walk I'd heard that their family the girls daughters were nearby so I went to a town to go and find them but there'd been a funeral on so they went there <clears throat> so I went to another town to wait for their bus to pass this town Newman and then I made a contact who knew them so she introduced me to them and I asked for their permission to to walk the fence um because that was my biggest worry that their story had inspired me, but I'm some white chick um, from England and we, we were part of the problem with why they were taken. And um, so I didn't want to insult them culturally. And then, so I stayed in touch with them and kept tabs with them. And then um, they didn't want to walk the fence, but Molly's daughter who lives in another town where I was walking into Jigalong, um, I managed to get in contact with, her by staying in touch with the other girls and yeah and she took me in and uh and so she 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 joined you for the the, the final the final leg yeah um, and then you became aware that uh that in fact daisy um one of the original three girls was still still alive yeah um, so what was what, did you know that were you aware that she was still alive and 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 how did you how did you um find that out and and and, and ultimately meet her yeah, I did know because when I did my research from here, I made friends with someone who did Australian art. She had an exhibition on from Karma, Karma Millie, which is the area where they're from. And so I went and met her and she called up her a contact and she was with uh, Daisy's daughter. So she, I did know she was alive, but she was very old. She was 96. And then when I did my the protest walk, that girl who didn't like me told me that she'd passed away, um, which I wasn't, I hadn't heard of it. So I wasn't sure if she had or not, but she was doing it to be nasty, which I thought was even more nasty. So I just didn't, I didn't know. And because she was so old, anything could have happened. And it took me three months to walk. And then when I got to jig along, Maria said, oh, Daisy's still alive. Would you, would you like to meet her? So I was like, oh my gosh, yes. It was really wonderful. And uh, and what what was that moment like? You kind of come to the end of the challenge, and here's one of your heroes um, uh, there. Yeah. Um, uh, what can you describe? Okay, kind of yeah. what that moment felt like? Yeah. So I had just randomly here had um, the book which I read 
this is the same one that I read about four times whilst walking the fence and I had it in my bag and then on her mantelpiece was the, this cover in a frame. So um, it, it was just a funny, I mean, I was no one really to, to their story, but I, it was, she was so ill that she couldn't really communicate, but her grandson was there and told her. So I just wanted to, her to know that their story was so inspiring and helped me through a difficult time. And it was, it was kind of nice to see that I had the book in my pocket and she had it on, on the mantelpiece. So it was just an incredible story. It's a really, and I was surprised that it's, I think a lot of people in Australia know about it, but it's a, I mean, thanks to a film being made that made it more popular, but yeah, just a very inspiring story. Absolutely. Well, as is yours, you know, retracing the footsteps and uh, uh, becoming, you know, I guess as far as you're aware, the first person to ever do so. That's no mean feat. That's that's an incredible challenge. And how long was the the, the journey in itself? Um, how long did that whole experience take? Oh, three months of a thousand miles. And, and were you giving yourself a, a time limit? Did you set, you know, I'm going to be at this point by this de- this time, or were you going with the flow a little bit? Because no, presume- r- yeah, roughly, not not a time limit, but I did have. I think I had six months. Um, Australian visa and I'd already spent a month in Perth but I suppose I kind of kept you know I I can't even remember it's a thousand miles so you cover 10 to 20 miles a day Um, you you know I I knew I'd be there within the time limit but also it was it was I've always freelanced since in my professional life and I procrastinate a lot because it's hard sometimes, you know, as a self-starter. Whereas I like the metaphor really with these adventures or long walks. I find it meditative because if you don't move, you, you literally don't move. So it kind of was inspired me to keep going to know that they were going and, and you physically um, you're aware of standing still, being stuck or moving forward. And. Um- with nobody having done it before, obviously you'll have maps and things with you, but you already mentioned, you know, getting lost happened. You must have to factor in a little bit of leeway for, you know, maybe taking some diversions because um, it's not necessarily just a following a straight line. Um, the fence is there well, sometimes it, and then it disappears. Yeah, it, it is as straightforward as following a straight line if the fence was there, but sometimes it was pulled down because it was redundant in the 50s. And other times the the bush had overgrown. Um, so, yeah, it did get hairy in some places. But that made it fun because actually if it was following the fence, then it would have been more straightforward. And I know that the trolley that you took with you, you named after your your dear old dad, um, uh-huh. Trevor. Trevor. Um, yeah. So how, mo- how important was that for you in kind of, I suppose, having a piece of your dad with you along that journey? No, it was very accidental. I had this trolley that I got from, I hired from, I saw a girl, she'd done a walk. I can't remember where specifically, but she walked a bit of Australia or quite a lot of Australia, but a different part, but through the outback as well. And um, she she had this trolley. So I was like, well, I could have made my own. I could have arrived in Australia and made my own, but I didn't know anyone. And I, I it's hard to rely on people that you don't know and it would have it could have cost quite a lot 
ended up crossing quite a lot or broken or whatever. So I knew she'd use this. So I, I took this one and then I was preparing it the night before I was going. And then um, I was packing him up and um, I, I thought, oh, I should name him. And I had some tape. So I just thought, oh, it's a trolley. I like alliteration. And then I was like, oh, Trevor. Yeah, sure. So it was very quite accidental. And I'm really glad I named him because because I was never on my own because I had him. So I had two inanimate objects, the trolley and, and the fence. And um, you, you come to the end of this journey and then it leads straight on to the next one. Uh, so you, I think, originally had plans to circumnavigate Australia kind of when you were travelling in Australia. Uh-huh. And uh, and you're at the end of the walking the rabbit proof fence, completing this incredible, incredible journey. Um, and obviously, you know, that has this personal connection with you and your heroes and ma- meeting one of them. And then the next thing, um, you're reinvigorating the the challenge of circumnavigating the country but by hitchhiking yeah tell us a little bit more about how that all came together yeah so when I got to Jigalong and I was going to see Daisy there was no public transport I managed to hitch a ride with a guy a mechanic who was working in the school back out to uh, Newman and then from Newman up to um, Port Headland which is where Daisy was there again was no transport so I had to hitch so I went to the service station and managed to get a lift with this one million dollar red shiny brand new crane truck Um, and he gave me a lift and up to Port Headland and it was really endearing because I suppose I on my way walking I went up the um, northwestern highway great western highway and I saw these big road trains and truckies and synonymous with I don't know like I thought they'd be chauvinistic or potty mouthed or racist and this guy was lovely and he had a bad experience with his wife left him and squirreled all his money away and la 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 it was not he was really sad and heartbroken and then he said one day he was in a shop and um, met his first ever girlfriend his high school sweetheart they stayed in touch and then they got together and they were about to go on their first holiday on a cruise together. So it was really, I really enjoyed the experience of talking to him. So after I, he wished me luck and I told him all about the Rabbit Proof Fence Girls. I was like, oh my God, what an incredible story. Um, so when I met Daisy, I was in a state of euphoria, sat on a curb, didn't want to, I didn't know what to do, but I didn't want to fly back to Perth in 60 minutes when it had taken me three months to walk so I hitchhiked with um five trucks and and they were one just again wonderful all wanted to help get me back to Perth if they couldn't get me all the way they'd get on the blowers or they'd go into a service station and ask around and they were just really kind and gentlemanly and so when I was in Perth I was waiting for my friend to pick me up and I was like I always wanted to circumnavigate Australia I want to see my friends so I will do it with trucks so I did. And so it, it, literally the traditional sense of, you know, you're standing at the side of the road, you've got your thumb out and you're waiting for somebody to, to come along. No, and... not quite like that. So they, they have, um, because they've got such long, big open roads in Australia, um, sometimes there's nothing for 700 kilometres. Um, they've got these truck stops or service stations out in the middle of nowhere. 
And so trucks often, you know, fill up there, will always stop and fill up there. And so I'd go to them and suss them out. I, I turned it into a project, even though I haven't done anything with it. So I told them I was doing a photography project and they all had to have their photo taken before I got in the car. And I did a little video and got them to introduce themselves. And is that for, um, as an element of safety so that you capture them yeah. and, you know, because it is a, an incredibly brave thing to do, especially, I suppose, as a single female traveller, putting yourself in that environment with a complete stranger. You know, a lot of people will be very, you know, risk adverse and wouldn't even consider doing that. Um, so how much of a, an element were you kind of building a safety net in for yourself? Well, it was the, the point of the project was to dispel people's misconceptions of them. So I, before getting in the car, I wouldn't, the truck, I wouldn't have got in if I didn't trust them anyway. But the, the photos was more for, to cover my back for if anything did happen, then people would be like, why is she being so stupid? So it was more, I never really did think any of them would do anything. It was more to just make them aware and me aware that I've got it covered and I also grabbed their phone, followed my Facebook page and uploaded the my post to theirs. So everyone knew where I was. And, and actually by the time I was getting round to the other side to say um, Cairns or Townsville, all the truckies had heard about me because I joined all these truckies Facebook groups. And I had one guy come up to me and say, oh, you're that truckie girl. Sorry, I can't give you a lift because I'd been stuck in one spot for three days because... I think there was a holiday and no no one was moving north. And he said, but I can give you a bag of grapes. So he gave me a bag of grapes. But it was really funny. It was really it was a really wonderful adventure too. And this is something that the national news got hold of as well, right? They, um, <laughs> they, 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 they interviewed you too. So I guess there's an extra safety net there in the fact that the country was aware that um, here's Lindsay Cole trucking around <laughs> around Australia. Um, how, you know, how does that come about? How does a new how does a news crew get out to you when you you're perhaps you know in the middle of nowhere? I don't know. I was a bit gutted actually because with the rabbit proof fence story, it's such an incredible story, and I I thought it was inspiring people hearing that someone from England wanted to come all the way to retrace their journey because they were so inspired by it. But then the the media weren't really particularly interested. I don't know if it's because it was so sensitive. And then this random trucky story, hey, because it's funny and lighthearted. And um, yeah, it was, it was great. But what was wonderful was that I was able to tell, I had so much time to talk to them. I think my shortest journey was two hours, but my longest was three days. Um, and often I, was in the, I had to sleep in the truck with them. Um, so often I, I had a lot of time with them. So I'd tell them all about the rabbit proof fence and, and they were all on side of it. They all thought it was harrowing and shameful. So it was really quite nice educating them about part of their history. And, and was it a story that you found that they weren't aware of, that they, they hadn't been aware that that part of the history had existed? Were you almost educating them on some kind of, some um, of national history? Yeah, some of them didn't know, because I think the film came out in 2004. And then I think maybe a few years after that, it was played in some schools. So not all schools. And so I think they might have heard of it, maybe, but not really known the ins and outs. And yeah, so I, and one guy actually was part of the song generation. There was one, one truckie, my final truckie, actually, 
which is again quite an uncanny moment. The guy who, so I started in Darwin, went all the way around to Darwin, and then Chucky started messaging me saying, "If you ever need lifts from here to here, then let me know." And I needed to get to Alice Springs, so I got a lift to Alice Springs, and then after I'd done my thing in Alice Springs. I thought I might as well carry on to Sydney. And my final truckie from Melbourne to Sydney, um, when I told him about the journey, he had been um, forcibly removed when he was a kid and placed in a settlement. So it was um, quite a, um, a, the, um, an inspiring truckie to finish off my journey. So in sort of, in a couple of different ways, it really did sort of come full circle. You literally yeah. circled <laughs> yeah. around the country, and 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 you met somebody that had. And so was and, and it, he was he aware of uh, Molly Daisy and Gracie's story himself? Yes. As, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, wow! Wow! What a what a what a fantastic kind of note to end on. Yeah. Um, and 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 so you, you know, you've been on these incredible adventures and in, um you know in different parts of the world but i know the uk uh, uh, certainly more and more in recent years has become a playground for your adventures as well uh-huh. um and uh and you last year um were dipping around britain um for those of us that don't know what you know dipping means um could you explain a little bit more about that journey and uh, uh and, and your your adventures in in open water swimming sure so i came back from australia at, via bali i cut my hands on a piece of plastic whilst diving out in indonesia and um, wanted to do something about it I was on the lookout for my adventure so i thought i'd swim the length of the river thames as a mermaid to highlight how we're choking our mermaids and creatures with plastic and it took up 22 days, 120 miles. Um, and lots of people just appeared to join me, um, unplanned. They hadn't messaged, they just rocked up, which was really moving because it was really cold. It was November, six degrees in the water. And then I, after this journey, I started receiving messages from people all over the country saying, oh, we just saw what you did if you're ever in Thai mouth or if you're ever in... Uh, the Lake District in Cumbria, if you're ever in. So Devon, come and join us. You're more than welcome. Always a warm bed. And I'm always on the lookout for a warm bed. And then this um, event popped up in March in um, Scotland, the Scottish Cold Water Swimming Championships. So I thought I'd cycle from Devon all the way up there, connecting with all these people along the way. So I bookended my day with a swim in the morning, and then in the evening, wherever I was able to cycle to and I got to um Scotland it took me two weeks to get there and I was only in Scotland for two days I was like wow it saved me two days to two weeks to get here it was such a shame to go straight back I had a lift back down south I wasn't living anywhere at the time I was just crashing with mates and so I thought I'll just carry on so it was a real gamble because I was gambling on on the kindness of swimmers joining more swimmers but it just worked and when uh, my lift left I panicked because I was like I don't know where I'm going north south east or west what what do I do and then um my phone pinged and it was a friend saying oh I've just seen you in Scotland we're in Malague always welcome so I was like boom so I cycled to Malague then went to Sky Harris posed with a bottle of Harris gin someone messaged me to say oh we've got gin in Orkney too you know come here so I went to Orkney and because I was in Orkney, I went to Shetland and then um, 
still wasn't ready to finish when I went to the most northern point of Shetland. So I was like, I'll cycle back down south, but I'll give myself an end goal. So I decided on Scilly. And we've randomly meandered all the way back down. But swimmers were my compass. So it was really a really heartwarming journey. And I went to all these places in Britain that I'd never been before. Amazing. And so when you when you're when you're dipping, when you're you're going for a swim, what does that entail? Are you are you doing a set distance? Are you literally just kind of jumping in and out of the water? Um, is it different from time to time? Um, what, yeah, it's just whatever, it really. So it's sort of winter swimming, I suppose, and it's very cold in winter, so it's more. I do it personally for the sensation. It makes me feel good, energized, invigorating. And I always get my head under underwater and it makes me squeal and scream. Um, so it can be anything from 30 seconds to 10 months, to 10 months, 10 minutes bobbing. I love long distance swimming, but I wouldn't do it in winter really. Um, and so it's just running in with someone I've just met, holding their hand, jumping in and bobbing about and then getting out eating cake and talking about, how to save the world <laughs> and so in your in your um your mermaid journey if we go back to that for a second what why why did you choose mermaid you could have you know you could have just swam it swam the length of the thames normally or you know um i don't know you could be dressed as as a fish or what, what was it specific to being being a mermaid that you thought would um kind of add something to that adventure because um when i cut my hand i was free diving and um my, it became a new hobby. So I was looking on Instagram of all these free divers and some of them donned a mermaid tail. So I was like, oh, right, that right. would be great. And I, I hoped that, you know, I don't like to preach. I don't think people listen when you preach. So I hoped that if I was a mermaid, it would make people think, ah, there's a mermaid in the water and, you know, like a human. And um, if we put litter in, it will choke her. Um, so to speak, but I called it urban mermaid because I think when people are by the coast or by a river or a lock or whatever, it they have an innate ability to care for for it. But when you're in urban areas, you feel like you're so far from the sea that you know if you drop your litter or you stuff a bin and it's uh, still full, then um, they don't think or if that litter gets out and blows into the drain, it gets into the sea because they're so far. So it's more to make people in urban areas aware that their actions can still harm the oceans. And thinking about those two challenges kind of in <clears throat> connection to each other, did you, so you're, 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 so you're mermaiding along the Thames and you're collecting plastic as you go. Um, and when you're out in the open water, did you see evidence of plastic pollution in these kind of remote areas as you're dipping in different parts of the country? Was that was that quite visible to, for you to see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when people walk their dogs out in the meadows, so the Thames starts in a um, Thames Head in Oxfordshire, Gloucestershire, sorry, and it's just green meadows for a lot of the way. Um, but when people walk their dogs, um, they might wrappers might um, spill out of their pocket. But often it was the cities that were, were, were worse. Um, but the point is, is when it reaches the Thames mouth down in um, Essex, then it goes out into sea. And once it's in the sea, that sort of 
game over really but it's more um we and then say places like Oxford or Reading people might have had a picnic and just I don't know the wind might blow the litter into um into the river or they might just dump it anyway but we found tons but we had a um a sculpture my friend Knud and she made a sculpture made out of recycled bottles and it was six foot high it was a mermaid sculpture and we stuffed what we could find what we found in her and we could have done it 10 times over and and what did you do with what you found were you um were some were people collecting it from you at the end of each day did you take it with you for the whole journey yeah I took it with us for the whole journey we were only a two-man team I always I always always do do stuff like on my own because support costs or it costs their time and if you value their time you want to sort of pay them and it um I, I don't know much at all and um so it was just us two really so we kept it and stuffed her the mermaid um we were going to do a um a green we were invited to a green festival to show her off but it, it didn't happen so she's now still in in um in Kennington in London at our friends my friend's auntie's garden so obviously the point is that when the 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 plastic pollution you know starts from these inland waterways and it has uh and then it's it's taken out to the sea but when you were when you were dipping in you you know Shetland for example or you know in the the far kind of reaches of, of different parts of Britain where you would expect there to be less pollution and, and maybe there was did you still see elements of of that waste when Shetland you were... was bad actually because I I imagine I don't imagine it's the people because I was on a remote island Shetland's made out of tons of islands and I was on the second northest most north island and as I walked around the coast all this litter washed up often broken down so I think once it's out at sea it washes up on an island but I was I was flabbergasted by by Shetland's coastline, um, and, and people did they made more effort to litter pick. They um, um, did weekly collections, but it still appears. Um, but yeah, everywhere is. But I um, I'm a surface sewage rep now, and um, I was made aware of their work when I swam the Thames because I'd passed somewhere like Maidenhead, and. Maidenhead and Windsor and they were really pretty decent and clean but it didn't mean that general people litter less I think it meant that more people cared for their part of the river and would clean it. What strikes me is that when you know you talk about your adventures and what you've done in terms of uh, you know whether it's triathlon and I know you've done a, an, an Ironman and uh, walking the fence and uh, cycling to South Africa and you're swimming the Thames and you're cycling around Britain and swimming around Britain it's all self-propelled motion it's it's you getting yourself to these places mm-hmm. and having these incredible experiences how much of a conscious um, thought is that when you consider what you're doing with your adventures and and how much of that relates to I suppose your own environmental principles and uh, uh, and uh, morals I think my environmental morals have come from enjoying exploring and seeing these incredible parts of the world and um, I suppose payment to it is is caring for it um, and money comes into it so I've always been on a, a really little budget so 
vehicles cost. So when I um, walked the rabbit proof fence, I think support did come into it, but it would be so costly and it would take, it's a different journey when you've got support. Um, so I watched a film recently called Bait. I don't know if you've heard of it. No, um, no. It's made on um, whatever, a cup, super something film like um you know that close-up box film and um it won uh, I think it won a BAFTA won awards anyway and it was done on a really tight budget and he said in an interview because they're on a budget they every shot was thought about and conscious and it's sort of similar when you're on a budget on a, on a journey you kind of don't waste the days you don't waste a penny um it's all sort of thought about and, and process I think if you hop in a car to get to places sometimes it is easy isn't it it's not it's when you have to propel yourself to get there it's real it's more rewarding right you, rewarding, yeah you've got, you've got yourself there you're kind of your there's no element of self-satisfaction I think within that yeah um, and there's, there's a quote don't get me wrong I do like riding in cars <laughs> <laughs> well th there is a quote which um of yours which sort of stood out to me um from when you were in Shetland um and uh I think it's from one of the the little kind of films that you you did or you an interview that you did um uh, as part of that journey where you say if you couldn't see the telegraph poles you wouldn't know what year you were in um which is quite a, a beautiful sort of thought in the sense of... Yeah, I forgot I said that. Shetland is incredible. And the point of my journey last year is, is actually one of my favourite journeys because it was accidental. It never meant to be an adventure. I was meant to be going down to Totnes to see if I want to live there and, and finish writing this book. Um, and it all happened accidentally, which is how adventures, the best adventures happen. But I was... Um, debating whether to go to Orkney and Shetland just because it was so far away and I obviously wasn't earning anything I teach English online so I could do one or two a week or a few lessons so it was pocket money um but then I looked I was up in northern um Scotland I was up near Aberdeen and I looked at I weighed up my options and I saw that if I was to come back to Shetland another year if I fancied it would cost up something like 700 quid to fly from London and take two days or something or a day and a half. And I was already in the area and I managed to blag free um, a free ferry. So I was like, well, I'd be stupid not to go. And I'm, I'm so grateful that I did because it was just so eye-opening um, and awe-inspiring. There's no trees. People tell you there's no trees. But until you go to a place with no trees, you can't con perceive what a place is like without any trees. It's so windy and raw and wild and the Atlantic crashes on these, this big cliff and it looked like a giant glass of um, gin and tonic. It was aquamarine, the water, and the froth was um, brilliant white. It looked like an avalanche crashing down the rocks. It was and it was it was March anyway. I like traveling places in March because it's not very busy. So it wasn't it wasn't busy at all. But it was, and there was seals right on the coastline. And anywhere you are, you're about two or three miles far from the um, maximum from the coast. It was it's just a, an incredible place. 
And there, there's remnants in the Northern Ireland and maybe others of um, these huts that people used to live in back in the days before the clearances. I didn't even know about the clearances. Um, and so... And what, what are the clearances for, for, for those of us that don't know? Yeah, I don't know too much, but I don't know the year it was, but um, a guy called Sutherland, a bloody, another, sorry, uh, an English guy, um, just wanted, he saw the value of land um, was uh, sheep were more valuable on land than humans. So he just cleared the, the humans off the land. And whether they had somewhere else to go or not, they they were they were pushed off. And it happened on the highlands as well, at Hebrides, Highlands, um, the Northern Islands. I think quite a lot of them, because they're experienced with cattle or sheep or farming, I think, and um, subsistence farming. I think a lot of them might have gone to Patagonia in Argentina. So I think they did quite well out of it. But um, but yeah, astonishing because I didn't I didn't know any of this. How much of a? I don't know my facts on that because I haven't read up on it just now. That's not no problem. You're not going to be quizzed on it, so uh, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I suppose people can go on Google if they want to learn out a little yeah. bit more. Um, but uh, so, how much of a deeper sense of appreciation do you have for Britain as an adventure destination? From you know having having spent time travelling in different parts of the world and doing things in different parts of the uh, you know different continents and you know quite incredible challenges do you have more of a sense of appreciation for what we have now on our own doorstep yeah um absolutely and um I suppose I've spent a lot of time in England and I'm not a big fan of cycling around the Midlands it's just roads and industrial and um I like long distance cycling as in touring like to get from place to place that's my type of cycling and when you have to go through that mess of roads, it just makes me feel queasy. Um, so once you're out of that, um, there's so many places to get to. And Northumberland I've never been to, and it's stunning. And Scotland, I really, really fell in love, love with Scotland. It just literally took my breath away. Um, and, and there's, I suppose, adventure anywhere. If you give yourself the time, um, there's, a, there's so many nooks and crannies in Britain that are um, wonderful to discover. As are any, for anyone living in any part of the world, discovering your doorstep is wonderful. Because when I left school or uni, all I wanted to do was go to far-flung places. I hadn't never been to Scotland before. Um, I, when I did the, I did Land's End to John O'Brien, so I saw Scotland quickly then, but... All I want to do is go to far exotic places or fun place Africa or South America, Australia, Asia. I wasn't interested in Britain. So it's kind of nice now sort of trying to settle down here and discovering, wow, Britain's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, uh, well, certainly when you, when you talk about some of the beaches up in the northeast there, I know when I was growing up having family connections over there, places like Bambra. Um, uh, and uh, uh, Beadnell, the, the, the beaches are phenomenal and they're quite often deserted and it's yeah. just things that unless you're from that area and that locality they're, they're a real hidden treasure so there are some beautiful and stunning places that you can get out to and you know you don't have to you know jump on a plane and travel too far to get to them yeah absolutely um so when it 
comes to adventure you know we live now maybe it's changed a bit since perhaps when yeah. you know when we first met in Canada you know I I, I know I had a, uh, a a regular camera where you had to get the film processed and but now we're in this Instagram kind of era how important is that in your considerations of what you do with adventure do you feel the need and the maybe the social pressures to fuel your channels by okay I need to do another adventure now because I've got to do an Instagram post or is that just kind of a, a byproduct of no the adventure comes first and you know yeah, the social content had, is a compliment I had a big epiphany about this when I was walking around Fence because I wanted to make a film I used to work in tv and film and so I was going to make a film about it I had this um Canon 5D that I got on Gumtree for a few hundred quid and so it was a big lump of a thing and a couple of lenses. And I'm really into images and photography. Um, and I would be filming. It's hard filming yourself because you've got to set it up on the tripod, take it out of its case, set it up on the tripod, run back, walk past, realize that you're not in shot. So do it all again. And you're really um, reduced to your battery life as well. So you've got to be really cautious. Um, and then the times when it was really difficult, I just, I actually just used this a lot to talk and it, I found that really helpful. It was like therapy, um, when something happened talking to this. So I was like, that's this nice. Bit, to... This being your phone, just for those that aren't watching oh, on YouTube. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but the 5D would have made nicer images, but while by setting it up, you're just losing the emotion. And so thinking about that, I was like, what am I doing this for, like a film or doing it? And I really wanted to do the adventure. So it was a good learning thing for me because it was the most incredible journey I've ever done. And I think it was because I, I, it happened organically and I didn't let anything interfere. Uh, whereas if I was focusing on a film, I would have kind of, you, you might have to set things up or big things up. or I, I don't know. It would have, wouldn't have been so true. Um, but I like writing. So when I get a nice picture or something, cause you have to take images when you're away, or it's still part of it and you want to remember them. But I like writing. So I, I like social media for if I feel something or something happened or there's a nice anecdote, I use it for that. Cause I think you can get caught up with the likes and the followers, but actually they don't really mean anything really in the grand scheme of things. It's good though. If you, you know, if you want to get, clothing or brands you, they can see what you do and that's this part of your job but as far as it goes it's, yeah and obviously storytelling is quite a big part of your adventures you know mm -hmm. you've got a lot of themes going on within each one you know um roller skating to viewed in a nude suit you know because it rhymed and you know there's kind of a uh, an angle there and then when you're running to Manchester and you're playing a ukulele and you're singing songs and going on the radio. It's kind of like a theme. Is that for you as a motivator? Is it for kind of attracting maybe some press and media attention to your adventures? What, what, what's the, is, what's the kind of, I guess, thought process behind some of those um, story storytelling more, more just, for me, for entertainment, for me to give, I think running from A to B would be boring if, if you give yourself, um, because I ran from, I ran from London to Bristol 
because a friend was doing the Bristol Half Marathon and I had a week off. So I was like, oh, I'll run to you and do it with you. And so I was like, oh, I can run. And I did it in three days or something, two and a half days. And so I was like, wow, I can run 40 miles a day. And I was like, you could, I could learn a skill in that time of running eight hours a day. So next time I did something, I um, learned to play the ukulele, listen to songs and learned to play the ukulele in the evening. And then the radio turned into a segment and that was all accidental. Um, I didn't get any media coverage apart from other radio. But um, to be in a nude was just for fun. And a friend had just lost his son, so I raised money for him. But it's just my own entertainment, really. And knowing that I can. And so with the Rabbit Proof Fence, that was a book that really inspired you. I know that you're working on your own book. Um, uh, how is that coming along and how are you finding kind of that whole process of getting, you know, your adventures together? And is it is yeah. it about all the adventures or is it about one in particular? Well, it's tricky. So this one, the Rabbit Proof Fence, was just me. And it's emotional because it's about losing my dad and why how I became acquainted with the story and then I did this journey last year which is very accidental swimming with strangers um and it, it brought so much joy and I was writing inadvertently every day about it from Instagram um so I think I might veer towards doing that one first and then go back to that one but I'm also writing a kid's book about a mermaid who found a cow because when I mermaid in Thames I found, rescued a cow which is something I want to ask you about as well, because so you're, you're you're swimming along, you're mermaiding along, and you see what you think is a kind of plastic bag, and you quickly realise that it's actually a, a cow has fallen uh-huh. into the Thames. Um, uh, you know how how did you um, how did you help the cow to kind of how did you rescue the cow and and, and yeah, is is it doesn't sound as exciting as as it was, but we called the police and the RSPCA and then six firemen came along and called her out and she swam from she's on a Oxfordshire side and she's actually from Gloucestershire so they got her to swim across the river and then she's reunited with her two calves um and the vet she was seen by a vet but the next day um a journalist asked us in Oxford what have we found in the river so we said we found balls cricket bats um, dinghies and mattresses and a cow and then it was on page three of the, the sun. <laughs> and what I really like about this story is that um, there was a, then a school or a teacher got in touch with you and turned it into a play. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what made me, it frustrated me at the time, actually, because I'd called all these radio stations to say what I was doing and they weren't interested um, and I said, I'll pass your area on these dates. And no one was particularly interested. Because you're trying to then, shine a spotlight on this plastic problem and you're trying to yeah. get people mobilised into, you know, there's a call to action here, isn't there, for people to act more responsibly when it comes to, you know, littering or litter picking or, you know, yeah. having an awareness of their own environment. Exactly. And no mermaid had some of the Thames before, but no one, I thought that would have been enough, really, because it's hard work as well. And then um, then we found a cow and then the whole country knew it. Once it was in, in the sun, I think Chris Evans um, emailed and, and Radio 2 emailed and Radio 5 emailed and, and um, then the local radios all wanted to be involved and interested and my phone just didn't stop ringing. So I was like, oh, 
now now they all want it but before <laughs> no one was interested and I didn't have time actually because I was swimming obviously so have you as this play that the school have done around your story in rescuing the cow has this come to fruition is it something that you've seen yeah, have you been invited it, along it to yeah they invited me along it was really lovely in Wembley last summer and um it was really really endearing it, it was really yeah really moving I, I was a bit blown away when I received the message I said yeah of course and then they and then they invited me two months later and it, so do you have a, have a kid playing you as the mermaid? Uh, I think they had a couple of mermaids, yeah. <laughs> and obviously school talks are something that you do and that mm-hmm. you, you, know, you share your stories with kids to help to inspire them. And um, what are the, some of the funniest questions that kids have asked you when you've been along to the schools doing assemblies? I think the youngest ones ask the best ones, like how oh no not how but do mermaids pee or I think I was talking about Australia and one kid kept asking questions like oh do they have giraffes do they have elephants do they have um all the animals that are in Africa but not Australia and um they're just really endearing and oh do shark do mermaids get on with sharks with all these incredible adventures that you've done there's a, there's a quote that you have on your website which I really like a Mark Twain quote which mm-hmm. is paraphrases um in 20 years time when you look back you will regret the things that you haven't done rather than the things that you have done so where do you want to be sort of in 20 years time when you look back and what's kind of how do you think that you'll reflect on the adventures that you've done today and the adventures that you've got yet to come yeah, I like that quote because I'm often, many of my friends from home have um, very hard um, established jobs like teachers or um, healthcare. And sometimes I'm like, oh God, because I didn't end, uh, intend to be an adventurer. I just, I just started doing adventures and then you eventually make a career out of it, albeit not make much money out of it. Um, so sometimes when I do do something or have an idea for something, I have this burning desire to do it and I can't think of anything else but doing it. And then I think, oh, is it narcissistic or how does it change the world or am I wasting time? But actually I get such a kick and a buzz out of it and you meet wonderful people by doing some of these things. Um, so I now have a network of other adventure type people and we help inspire each other. Um, so I think I, I remember when I was doing about to do the trucks thing, I thought, God, I, I won't lose sleep when I'm an old person by not doing it. But I've actually got by my um, desk here a certificate. They have certificates for um, traversing from Darwin down to Adelaide because it's a long, long road. And I was like, not only have I done that, but I've done all of that. And you, get a, a, you can tick the thingy. Um, so it's just, we all have different lives and, and I think you won't ever regret doing something, but you might not, not regret doing that thing, but it just makes you have more of a colourful life and more things to talk about in the old people home. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and just to kind of wrap things up, a quote of yours that I really like is that success relies on the kindness of strangers. Um, what are some of the kindness or kind things that strangers have 
done for you when you've been on your adventures um, and what are some of those moments and kind of smaller moments that maybe you know maybe don't get shared and talked about as much that you've been quite you know overwhelmed by yeah but there's there's too many there's far too many but um one that just popped into my head was when I roller skated to Bude in the nude suit and um I didn't really know much about roller skating and they, they weren't blades they were um skates and um no, no 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 sorry they were blades they were blades but um I didn't know about the bearings maybe wearing away and um they started sticking because the roads down in Devon and Cornwall are they're like emery boards you know nail files and so the wheels really working away and getting loads of muck in them <clears throat> and we stayed with a friend's friend never met this guy before and I had to go to a skate shop to get new bearings and the nearest one was we were in North Devon the nearest one was in Exeter and he goes oh, I'll drive you there in the morning I was like oh no no don't, don't absolutely don't worry about it he goes no 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 I will I said no please what time do you need to be at work and he said Lindsay let me have my own adventure so he just wanted to be a part of it and I didn't want to burden him with this thing so he drove us down to Exeter then dropped us back where we were and it took maybe three hours, four hours out of his day. But he just loved being a part of it because he had his own business and couldn't take the time out to roller skate in a new suit. So he just took um, a little satisfaction by helping me out. So, but there's tons of stories of people being kind. Which I think uh, in the times that we find ourselves in at the moment is... Uh, uh, you know, an important message for I think everybody just to just to be kind to each other, of and uh, uh, now now more so than ever. But Lindsay, thank you so much for having uh, the time to chat. You, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, where can people find you if they want to go and find out more? Sure, um, at Stumpy Cole on Instagram and LindsayCold.co.uk for online. 